Hello, this is Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton, and today in the last of our pre-lockdown shows, we're off to meet Kelly Jones of Stereophonics. And I wrote down some bullet points about how I saw the development of her sexuality, you know, about wanting a haircut, wanting to wear trousers, wanting to do this, and, and I said, do you think this is kind of accurate? And she said, yes. Now, it had been a little while since I'd caught up with Kelly, and it turns out quite a lot has happened in his life since we last met. So much, in fact, that it took me a few minutes to process it. You'll see why. But what I hope you'll get from this interview is how caring and compassionate Kelly is, and what an inspiration he is to the fathers that find themselves in his exact position. I know you're going to love it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Right now, here's the show. to meet um, a friend of mine that I haven't seen in a little while, Mr. Kelly Jones from Stereophonics. Um, he's such a lovely guy, and I think we're going to cover many interesting subjects during this conversation because he's had a really colourful, brilliant life with lots of twists and turns. Last time I interviewed Kelly, I asked him about one of the songs on the record because I know that it was influenced by his daughter coming out. And I know that there was, at the time some conversation around gender as well but Kelly certainly wasn't talking about that publicly at that time and perhaps as a family they were still having those conversations and working out where they were at as a family so I think we'll pick up on that today and see how he's doing and if he's up for talking about it. Oh, Kelly, thank you for doing this. Um, okay. Thank you for welcoming us, uh, us into your <laughs> studio. So is this where you, you're writing uh, a lot, you're recording a lot? Yeah, I had this place in about 2012. It was just a place to come every day to do some writing and kind of the bits at the end of the recording, go to the proper studio and then come here to kind of finish it off and kind of get out of the house for nine hours and then go back and pick the kids up. Nice. Mm. Well, I'm glad we're getting to do this because we've, I don't know how long we've known each other for, but it feels like a very long time now. It does. Yeah. I, I mean, you're at my 30th party and I'm not far off 40. So that's yeah. already a decade, which is terrifying. Yeah, well, and all the TV shows probably before yeah. that where we kind of knew each other, but yeah, it's been it's been years now, really, isn't it? Probably fifteen mm. years. And you just showed me um, a picture that my dad Mick <laughs> gave you as a present that's above your piano. He'll be he so did. chuffed that it's on he the did. wall. There was there was when I was talking to him once at one of your parties that. I was a big fan of Creedence Clearwater Revival and then the next time I saw him, I think he was trying to get to my birthday party that night, wasn't he? And we got stuck in traffic. Oh my God, that's right. I just so, made it, yeah. yeah. And then I had uh, a canvas 
of John Fogarty writing a song, so I stuck it above the piano. It's been there ever since. Oh, he'll be. Yeah. I'll take a picture. He'll be. He'll be so chuffed yeah. about that. So I want to kind of go back first of all because I know that when you were growing up in mm. Wales, I've read that you've, you've kind of talked about this sense of freedom from not having to necessarily think about anything, just the freedom of kind of lack of worry, lack of thought. And I thought yeah. that was a really beautiful concept because. In this day and age, it's not like that. Everything is so fast and we are constantly ruminating and, and worrying about things. Yeah. Um, do you think that's because you were a kid then or just because times have changed so much? I think the area where I grew up had a lot to do with it. I think there was a lot of characters who were very, very funny and sarcastic and very hardworking, a lot of working class people around me. And, and I was the youngest of three brothers, so it was a nine-year gap between me and my oldest brother. So I was always around older people telling stories. And I guess there's a freedom being the youngest one as well. You've got a lot less responsibility and you can see everybody else's mistakes in front of you. Um, and there was literally one road in and one road out. You couldn't really get out of the village. And it was just surrounded by mountains. So our playground literally was going up into the hills and all that sort of stuff and just being out on your bike all the time. So when I reflect back, I think a lot of it was to do with the environment and the safety of the characters and the people around me, which is what I got off on. My dad was playing in the workingmen's clubs and I'd go to hear all the stories, all the people in his band and all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't know if it's to do with the age. I think it was much to do with where it was, really. It felt like a, a proper sense of... Um, there was no danger there. You know, you were out until 10 o'clock on your bike and then your mother called you in and that was that, really, you know? Mm, yeah, that I was talking to someone about that the other day, how... We were giving, we were given so much freedom as kids, and yeah. we would just go up to the park on our own, or you know, walk into town or whatever. And that doesn't really happen because we're all so no. scared. And there was a swimming pool opposite my mother's house, um, like a council Lido thing. So all summer you'd go over there with a like a, a Toshiba ghetto blaster tape recorder <laughs> with your ACDC cassettes, yes. and, and you would make mixtapes, and you would sit in that pool and just kind of try to talk to the one girl that you fancied at the school, you know, because of the summer holidays, which you never, ever managed to do properly. So it was always sunny in my memory of it all. But um, but even when it rained, it was kind of going sideways now. And then you'd go into somebody else's house and just look out the window and, and just hang out and stuff like that. So it was, it was a great, it was a great childhood. I wouldn't have changed anything about the childhood. Looking at, um, you know, how you view your childhood and that, and that sort of simplicity versus, now in the modern world do you feel it's the same with the band you know were the early years more carefree and um and involved less thought than than perhaps how it is today for you as a band the ambition when you first get going is you want to get a record deal that's the first like rung on the ladder and if you, you don't really know why you want a record deal you just get told that you've got to go out and find a record deal and i used to package up like uh cassettes uh, and i would package them up in loads of different kind of boxes cake boxes shoe boxes and i would take them into the post office to this woman and i'd have 11 different packages to 11 different companies of 11 different songs and send them every week and she must have thought i was mental <laughs> and i would just send them away in different boxes because i thought the gimmick would make somebody open the box and actually listen to the song and it didn't work and i kept on doing stuff like that so it's like there's an ambition to try to get something and then but then when we did eventually get a record deal Richard Branson was the one that signed us first and there was a lot of people who wanted to sign us at that point after many, 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 many refusal letters. We all realised, I don't know if that's a working class thing, but we all realised very quickly that the record deal is not really the end result, really. It's actually the first stop, you know. 
and the only way to continue going forward was to write songs that mean something to ourselves and to other people then we'll find a connection from those songs but it wasn't the record deal we realized that that wasn't the holy grail really and then you get and then you do write the songs and you get number one record then you realize well that doesn't really fill the hole either and then then you play Wembley Stadium or something and then you go well that hasn't quite fulfilled it either and then on you on on you go so, so now I'm 46 this year and I still haven't quite filled whatever that hole is so it's like in answer to the question really I don't know if it it gets easier or whatever it just kind of continues on I think that's an artistic's way of of thought really you never quite figure out what it is you you are trying to achieve the one thing I've noticed of of the last few years though is that honesty I think is something that does definitely fill part of something because you're not trying to wear any sort of masks or trying to be something that you're not you're just trying to actually portray exactly what you are feeling in a more open way without being guarded you know Mm, oh my god I mean absolutely because I think you know whether you're a creative person or or otherwise we all sit there thinking well when I've got that job when I've met that person when I've got married whatever that you're then going to feel like like you say you filled that hole or you're complete in some way Mm. and that's really never it and actually it is all about the truth like I certainly relate to that I feel like the more honest I am especially in my working life um, the more fulfilled I am again I haven't like ever reached this pinnacle this like utopia but it certainly feels better like deeper it does. It's it's about. Um, I think you get you 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 end up chasing your own tail really because it's like you're chasing your own expectations, you're chasing your own kind of ambitions. But then when you stop it and step outside your comfort zone and do something completely different, like recently I did this solo tour and I I picked all the songs on that tour, which were all the songs that I don't really ever play in any stereophonic shows because I decided to pick all the songs that got me through troublesome times in my life which are usually tracks eight or nine on the record or wherever because they're in and amongst stuff that, you know, are easy to play in football stadiums or uh, anthemic songs. Not that those songs are not written from the same place. They're just more celebratory. But I decided to pick the songs that literally got me through times of trouble, if you want to call it that, because at the time I wrote the songs, I didn't choose to write the songs. The songs kind of channeled through me onto a piece of paper through upset through trauma through you know grief or whatever it might have been and and when they were put on that page they would 100% serve the purpose to make me feel better mm. um so doing that tour and picking those songs but then telling funny stories in between the songs how messed up it was because now I've got a sense of humor about some of the situations that almost killed me it was a very very interesting tour because there was so much light and shade to it there was laughing then it was crying there was laugh and was, so it was an amazing experience which I could never do in a stereophonic show because you've got a you know got a rock and roll band on the stage and you've got the light show and you've got lots of people who want to sing along to all the songs so it's a different kind of environment so it's not until you do something like that you go that actually did fill something that did fulfill yeah. me in a way where not that the stereophonic stuff doesn't but I know how to do that like standing on my head to a degree this stuff it was like walking a tightrope every night and it was absolutely terrifying because you have to walk on calm not adrenalized because I actually would walk on with spoken word and to do that is not like walking on with a big rock and roll number where you have to pump yourself up before you go on stage this was the opposite you have to kind of calm yourself down so when you walk on you can actually breathe and talk and then the whole room kind of goes all right we're going there are we and then they all kind of come down with you and then you can hear a pin drop and then it's like oh I never knew I could do that and that is something 
that I've learned that the only thing that does fill the hole is growth and learning, really. And as soon as you do something that's challenged you in a major, major way, you go, I actually feel really fulfilled about that. But something where you keep doing the same thing over and over again, which we all do in life because that's the you know, it's it's necessity of life as yeah. well, you know, pays the bills or whatever it is mm. you do, whether you're working in a factory, putting remote controls in a plastic bag or singing twos in a field, you know, it's part of what you've always done. And if I walk away from this, well, I'm not going to go back to working in the market selling fruit and veg, but it's like, what am I going to do if I don't do that? So it's trying to always find that other avenue that keeps making you feel like you're getting a buzz out of something, really. It's so interesting, because I've been thinking a lot about, um, I guess, sort of truth and and hooking into our own truth a lot recently, and I've been writing about it. And you realise that it it's always the trickier option. Mm. You know, it's not an easy thing to be honest about your own life to maybe your friends, your family, but certainly not publicly, because yeah. it's easier to stay on the surface in any sense, whether it is, like you say, by repetition or um, just by kind of ignoring it. So how did you get to that place where you could step out onto a stage in, I'm imagining, quite a vulnerable place to mm. to talk about things and to sing about things that really deeply felt true for you? I think I think you go through a series of... Um you go through a series of like what what's perceived as massive successes, and you're on the front of the magazines and all this, that, and the other, and then and then you have people kind of turn on you and twist on you, and as everybody does in this job, one minute you're there, then the next minute you're down there, and then you've got to build yourself back up again, wherever it might be, and then there's an expectancy to like, oh, you've got to get another number one record, you got to get on the playlist, you got to do this, that, and the other. And for a while, you're kind of chasing the success of your own success, yeah, and you're kind of doing, well, what am I doing this for? Who 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 am I doing this for? Because it's not really giving me any fulfillment and I think when you take a break I think after the greatest hits came out in 2008 or whatever it was which was was a massive success for everybody in the record company and everybody in the band and all that sort of stuff but then the next album we brought out um, we changed record companies and it kind of fell apart really and it was the first time we didn't have a record inside the top 10 and everybody in Universal Records sat me around and went to me I think maybe you should start writing songs for other people Maybe this is not really happening for you anymore. Maybe your songs are not going to get on the radio, this, that, and the other. And I was thinking, well, hang on, I'm like 34, I'm thinking, and I was thinking, this doesn't sound right, but all right. And then I went ahead and meetings with my publisher, thinking, you know, do you want to write songs for the boys from One Direction? Do you want to do this? And I was, I was sitting in this meeting thinking, I don't feel like I'm done, but I'm being told that I'm done. Isn't that mad after like one small change in yeah. your ascent to success that that would be like, oh, maybe we should yeah, do Yeah, we'd had like anyway. six consecutive number one albums and then something kind of didn't go wrong. And then I was I was kind of being put in the corner that they couldn't get my songs on the radio because of my songs. But then I was thinking, all right, if that's the case. So I took a break and I went back to where I kind of got my degree in, which was film and animation. So I went back and started learning my kind of chops on screenplay writing and script writing again, and I was working in BAFTA, and I was I was writing this screenplay. It was just after Stuart had died, really. And uh, that screenplay uh, inevitably turned into the album Graffiti on the Train, which then weirdly got on the radio. It had five A-list singles, and it was a platinum album, mm. and it was... But I took three years. I was sitting in that in the that part of the studio doing the screenplay in the day, and then going out there and doing the music in the night. And and the film almost got made. You know, it was um, 
George McKay done read-throughs and, and Iron Bernard and uh, uh, Robbie Ryan was going to be a, uh, the cinematographer. And then we ran it. We didn't get the funding in time. And then I had to go back on tour and I've been on tour ever since. Wow. So I never, never quite got back around to doing it. But it was... It was, was that like a reset for you then? That was like a bit of a reset musically it was, by yeah. accident. That literally was because I would go to BAFTA in Piccadilly. I would sit in there with a woman called Kate Lees. She would rip all my ideas apart going... This is not about that. This is about this is about you and your two friends trying to get out of a small village. And I thought it was about three graffiti artists because I had the guy climb on my roof one night in my house and I thought, what's this guy doing on my roof? And I shouted out the window and they said, oh, mate, we're not trying to break in your house. We're just trying to get to the train track behind you. I was graffiti the train. <laughs> and I thought, well, you're still on my fucking roof. <laughs> so do you want to get off here? So he got off my roof. And um, but then it started making me thinking, what risk do you have to take to jump over somebody's house to fucking leave your mark on something? Yeah. So, and it made me realise about leaving your mark. And then it, it, it kind of did revert me back to me, Stuart and Richard, trying to get out of that small town. And I made this whole story up about three lads running away from a small town. Maybe they went to Paris and all this, that and the other. But then when she was looking at my words and all the stuff I was writing, she was going, this is not about this. This is about your relationship. It's possibly about you and Stuart. It's about this. It's about that. And she literally would just rip me to fucking bits. And I've never right. had anybody... Like, I write the lyrics, put them on the table. I sing them in a vocal booth and the boys go, sounds good. <laughs> you know. Lovely. So that's that. <laughs> yeah. you know, but when she's like that going, fucking crossing this. Yeah, out, right? that's and she horrible. Would, and she ripped my sh- shit to bits, basically. Mm. So I would, I would walk out of the, out the BAFTA and, you know, walk past the Ritz. And I was walk- and I think I'll flag a cab any minute now. But I would end up walking all the way home to Fulham, and I would be walking for like almost two hours, just constantly thinking about what this woman has put in my head. And it really, really reset my whole thought and my brain. And and on that album, I decided fuck the radio, fuck anybody, fuck the fans. And I came in and I wrote that whole record basically for myself. And the irony of it is it became what it became as a platinum album and it was all over the radio. So, mm. And that gave me hope and belief because then I thought, well, maybe I did slip off my agenda a little bit. Maybe I was trying to cater to other people as opposed to actually writing from from where I was supposed to be writing from. But isn't it so often the case that we, there's all this exterior noise like constantly for all of us, whether it be our family's opinions, our friends, mm. or we hear on the TV, the radio, see on social media, and it is subconsciously affecting and informing how we make decisions and, and how we work and how we communicate. And we are trying to please everybody all the time. Yeah. We want to be, we don't want to upset anyone, we want to be popular. And that actually dilutes what, how we feel, like yeah. our truth, that dilutes it. And, and I imagine for you at that time, you know, not only needing to do something different because of what was happening musically, but Stuart passing yeah. may, had a huge impact on it you did, yeah. reaching ground zero in that way. Yeah, well, me and Stuart, you know, like I said, he was he was in number 62, I was in number 54. So we'd grown up in the same street. He'd be playing ACDC records in his house and I'd be playing in my house and the, the neighbours in between were like in hell. And um, so when we started a band, it was like two brothers, really. Um, and then it got to a point in about 2003 where he was kind of going through his own troubles and he was getting a bit off his mind a little bit and, you know, he, he went down the drug avenue and the drinks too hard and and then he wasn't turning up for work and he wasn't showing up for this, that and the other. And the hardest thing we had to do was to actually say, look, this is not actually working anymore. And um, And he left the band. And we were speaking after about a year of, you know, the usual spats and stuff like that. But they were never that never that serious. So after about a year we were talking and texting and um and then about seven years later we we you know, 
in between all that time we had friendship but then seven years later he actually passed away and we were headlining uh, I think Cardiff Football Stadium on the Saturday and we all had some drinks on the Sunday and then I was meant to go to my uncle's funeral on the Monday and he was coming with me because he loved the funeral he loved drinking in funerals and uh, his brother phoned me that morning and said that he found him found him dead so he was like and he was 40 and that was like very 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 surreal because then I had to drive past his house to get to the crematorium and all the film crews were outside there so the whole day on my uncle's funeral who was like a war hero he had, he's a paratrooper and stuff the press would just follow me around all day in this oh funeral asking God. me questions about what happened with Stuart and of course I'd, I had no idea what happened to him at that point um, so it's uh, and that took me years to actually get over that I kept dreaming about him every night and he kept coming up with my dreams and I never quite worked out what it was all about and then I went in there one day in the studio and this this song kind of came out uh, before anyone knew our name. And I guess that was my uh, kind of closure on the grief maybe because mm. after that it kind of settled down a bit but I, maybe I hadn't dealt with it or something. I don't know because it all happened very, very fast. Um, but he always said, you know, he would he never, he never wanted to live past 40 and this, that and the other and I just thought it was always a wind-up really but it's... Um, some characters are kind of meant to burn out a little bit faster mm-hmm. and I think he was he was definitely um, he was definitely one of them but yeah tragic really and have you found that your songwriting and even the performance of your songs is cathartic you know you can it can help you move through stuff grief loss sorrow whatever you're experiencing I think so I think um when I wrote Maybe Tomorrow, I just left Wales. Um, I just left Wales after I'm like my first ever long-term relationship. My, I was with my girlfriend from like 14 to, I don't know, about 26, 27. We were together forever, you know, went through everything together. You know, she was in shell suits while she was in hairdressing college and all that. <laughs> and uh, she would pay for my burgers. She had more money than me. So we were really good mates. And then we split up and then... Um, and then the usual thing, you know, my, my who I thought was my best mate became her shoulder, and then my best mate ended up like trying to knock off my uh, my obviously long term girlfriend. So then I found them together, and that became like this major s- scene in in the hometown where we were from because I um I actually um went to his house and I I smashed his window and I smashed up his car and the police came and all that and it was a big scene so I thought I can't can't stay around you for much longer so I had to I had to kind of leave um, that town and when I moved to London I I bought a little flat in Fulham and I remember writing Maybe Tomorrow next and I think Maybe Tomorrow was about grieving really Mm. grieving my hometown grieving maybe my relationship being somewhere that I thought was going to be safe and secure but when you look around, really, there's there's nobody that I know, really, apart mm. from who I work with, you know. So that was, but I don't think I knew it at the time. But, yeah. But then when I look out into a field and I see 50,000 people singing it back, then they've obviously all felt something on the same thing. But yes, at the that time, connection. Yeah, but I I didn't really know. But when I look at the lyrics now, being, being down and wondering why these little black clouds keep walking around with me, it's quite literal, really, but I didn't really think about it at the time I wrote it. But obviously it's about being... Down, depressed, low, anxious, all that stuff, really. And is it something you're perhaps then 
you know more aware of now because we spoke before Christmas mm. and I, I interviewed you before Christmas um, around the release of your last number one record, Kind, mm. and um, and I know that for you was a a huge moment of wanting to talk about something that you hadn't really delved into before, and you had stuff that you were again dealing with in your actual life outside of work, mm. you know, real life subjects that needed time and care and thought, and you had channeled all of it. And I think I'm right in saying sort of unknowingly into yeah. this record because these songs just arrived in your life. Yeah, they did. And I think even with Maybe Tomorrow, it's like, I probably know it now more so what it meant then because you know what it's like when you're in your late 20s. You, you think you're feeling something, you write it down, you think, okay, maybe I'm there, but maybe I'm not really there. But then as you get older and older, you see patterns going, well, I, I actually see these patterns more and more frequently yeah. so I, you understand yourself more. Um, at the time, I guess I was just writing a song. But on Kind, I think those songs just kind of literally came through me. Um, this life ain't easy. I just remember writing that, being pretty upset, actually, just with a pencil and there's two pages of A4 and there's no there's no scribbled out to just one from one part to the other part. And um, it was the same for stuff like Fly Like an Eagle and make friends with the morning I didn't even um, didn't even write that down I was in Australia jet lagged and I was just walking around by this river thing and I just sang that into my phone and so there's definitely some moments in time when I guess your artistry or your your catharsis or wherever it might be it just literally pours out and it channels into something and then you're a little bit vulnerable whether you want to show it or not yeah uh, that's the moment of the balancing act is this something that somebody else really wants to hear or see um but i think that was the reason why we wanted to record it very very fast and just get it done and get it out and you know all that was done within six months really so i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I remember you sending me last summer the video to uh, Fly Like an Eagle and I was, I didn't I know what I was going to get. You text me and I was like, oh, Kelly's written another song as a video and you think, what's it, is it going to be upbeat and, you know, like mm. rocky or what's it going to be? And I lost my shit. I was crying my eyes out. This video is so beautiful. I instantly could see the subject matter that you were dealing with and could kind of understand where you were coming from with it, although I'm not a father in the situation that you've been in. But wow, I mean, it's a raw, raw song and the video is, is you know, yeah. it's just heartbreaking. Um, it's all about your, your daughter, Bootsy. Yeah. And her, first of all, coming out to you. Yeah. I mean, how do you start to process that? Did, was songwriting one of the first things? Or, or was it just, you know, a lot uh, of pain that then channeled into a song? It was kind of a weird situation, really, because Fly Like an Eagle as a song was literally about, like, my kind of transition. Because I was realising that, you know, the opening line is thinking about quitting. And that's what I was thinking about doing. Um and everybody around me is laughing, everybody around me is this and all that. And I was, it was just, I guess, me seeing that my commitment 
and we spoke about this before, my commitment to my work and all the stuff that I do has been from such a young age. Yeah. There's a part of your adulthood that actually went missing, you know, because it was always... It was always being dealt with through through my work, really. Mm. I never went out and did a lot of stuff other people did. Um, I got to do all my experiences, getting drunk with my friends, wherever, actually on a tour bus or, or, or being on the road. But I never actually did a lot of that stuff in in the normal realms of, of nine-to-five job, whatever. It was a different situation. So when I got to the end of like the last tour or whatever, I thought I've I, I got to work out if I can find some sort of stillness, some sort of calm, some sort of something in my life without this music without this job so I was trying to quit in my head and that song came out of me trying to figure out how to how do I kind of reinvent my own self not my job not my music but how do I try to figure out myself and that's what the Fly Like an Eagle song was about and then when it came to the video by this point I'd I'd found out that Bootsy was going through a sexuality situation and I could tell that was going on for a while and she was asking me questions about this, that and the other. And, and oddly as well, she gave me that artwork. Uh, she, that artwork. She drew the artwork in a chemistry it's exam. so beautiful. And whether she saw it or not, I'd recognise that, you know, there's an oak tree at the top and like a fir tree at the bottom and a line straight through it and one's kind of red and this and the other's are kind of blue. And she just sent that to me on a phone and I looked at her and I thought, that sound looks exactly like how the music feels to me. And it represented in my mind that, you know, you show one thing on the outside, but underneath you something else sort of thing. And I sat down and I said, look, I'm thinking about this song and I, I can see you're going through this and I feel like I'm going through this. And I said, I see some sort of parallel here. It's a different parallel, but I do see something about, it's about change and it's about how we feel inside compared to how we show on the outside and all this sort of stuff. And I wrote down some bullet points about how I saw the development of her sexuality, you know, about wanted a haircut, wanted to wear trousers, wanted to do this and and I wrote down these bullet points and I and I and I said, Do you think this is kind of accurate? And she said yes. And um so then I found uh, Charlotte Regan, who's a great video director and she decided that she'd help me make the video and she did the video. We got a good cast and we did that. But it's like an ongoing process, you know, from that point on Bootsy then worked out that it wasn't just a sexuality thing, it was the gender thing and now it's become more and more about um, transitioning. So now she's gone from Bootsy, transitioning into Colby and trying to deal with all that as a parent and as a school and as grandparents and Christmases and all this sort of stuff is is a huge, huge thing. And, and she was dealing with like a lot of anxiety through all this stuff. But then it felt like every every little bomb she gave me and her mum and the family, she would get lighter and feel better about herself and and now it's got to the point where I'm at the school and I'm talking to the school so now her name is Colby and now it's he and in an all-girls school so the school have been amazing supporting the whole thing but for a while I, I just it was kept becoming more and more and more intense and I, I, I remember getting upset one night and I felt like I sounded like an animal because I couldn't work out what was going on and when you read about it you actually go through like a grieving process because you feel like you've lost your daughter and you've gained a son and then you get responsible for the siblings how they're going to deal with it and your grandparents and there was a four day thing I had to just get in my car and I drove to Wales and I just walked up a mountain and I didn't really know what I was dealing with but I think the only thing you can end up getting to is acceptance really and I'm at acceptance with it and we're all fully supporting it but 
it's the resistance to everything and your own prejudices and your own um, whatever films you've seen or you know whatever it is or your upbringing or or, or derogatory terminology you used as a kid all that just comes straight into your head the minute you hear the word trans or transgender weirdly I bumped into Sam Smith because he was in the rehearsal room next door to me so I was speaking to him about it then I bumped into him in a fuller match he was sitting in the same row as me so I've bumped into a few people who are on the same page as it all. Um, but now it feels like I don't feel like I've lost anybody at all. It feels like, you know, Colby's in the house. All this, you know, the sisters are just, you know, Misty made made him a painting for Christmas with like the word Colby on it put on the wall. So it was all these little sweet things. And then on Christmas Eve, we had about 20 people around the house. And he's always been really nervous about doing songs in school because he plays piano. Been playing acoustic guitar for about three months. And he walked downstairs in front of 20 people and started singing some song you'd have YouTube in front of everybody. And I was wow. like, so it's like, it's almost like you take off one jacket and then you feel much more confident about who you are as y- yourself. And all you can do is really support that. But it's a very odd subject to bring into one's home, which is why I wanted to make the video burn, which is why I guess I want to talk about it. Because for me, I had no clue or understanding about any of that stuff. So... And as a family, for for me, for Jackie, for the for the kids, for uh, Becca, Colby's mum, all of us, we've just been playing catch up, and we got our first kind of um, uh, therapy session with a gender kind of specialist in a place called the Little Bee Clinic now on Friday. So it's about just moving forward, really, and trying to get into adulthood as safely and as um, calmly and slowly as you can, because they want to push you forward and push you forward and move faster. Um, because they're all in these kind of youth groups of like-minded people and they're all talking about how they want to do this and change this and do all that but you have to kind of let the mind kind of catch up with what you want the body to be doing really so it's quite scary but it's also again when we talked about growth and learning I'm definitely growing and learning a lot from it so Mm. it's um, and I see it everywhere now it's weird it's a bit like when somebody's pregnant or you go in your car you look out and you just see that same thing everywhere and you can you recognise it once your eyes have been turned on to something, you know. So the prejudices, or or not, you know, you're not carrying the prejudices, but you can't help. Everybody underneath something has some sort of upbringing that has been ingrained in you, whether you know it or not. Yeah. So when it comes to a situation like that, you think you know how to deal with it, but then you go, actually, I fucking don't know how to deal with this. How do I deal with this? Um, and then bit by bit, it kind of slowly unravels. Um, but I think the key is that you can't, you got to stop resisting all of the problems, really. you just got to accept them. And then once you accept them, then you can move forward past the fear stage into um, just working on it. And how easy has it been to have as a family an open dialogue where you know that at any one point, any one of you can talk to the other and... Mm because you're all figuring stuff out at the same time and you're all figuring out dynamics and and what the the new chapter is going to look like it is is that free flowing yeah. now it pretty much is i mean christmas was the the bit that was scaring me um but then when christmas arrived family came over from australia my parents coming up told my brothers it was actually having everybody in the same house eventually that kind of made it easier because then everybody was seeing it and not going oh it's just a phase it'll pass you know because that line comes up a lot it's just a phase it'll pass but when you know your own kid 
and you go through lots of stuff together, you realise that I don't really think it is a phase. You know, if I go to a choir um, concert and all the kids are there with like all the girls are there with long hair and they look like typical teenage girls and and your kids walking down there with short hair and wearing a shirt and trousers and jokes like that she looks like a bartender then you know that either takes a lot of bottle mm. and you're rebelling against something or there's something else going on and and to me it was it was very courageous and very brave and my mother it you know she finds it hard to use the terminology and the, the pronouns and and the and the name and I could see that Colby was getting a bit upset at one point, not in a major way, because very, very um, delicate kid and not wanting to scream and shout. But I just said to my mother, I said, I think you're just going to have to make an effort and just say it, you know, um, as much as you think it's going to pass. And then my mum went up to the bedroom and had a chat with her, and it was quite cool. It's all been very, um, very open. And ultimately, you have to bring it right back to the point of what you're actually talking about, really. It's not about me. It's not about my mother. It's not about my, you know, it's not about her grandmother or whatever. It's about, it's their life, right? So it's them that's going through it. Um, and you have to try and support that as much as you can, which as hard as that is, because it's the unknown. It's a generation of, I think the, the NHS used to get about, you know, 70 referrals. Now they're getting, they're getting over 3,500 referrals. And a lot of it is girls wanting to be boys. Um so we don't really know why it's happening. We don't know why if if it's because people are feeling more open about talking about it. We don't know if it's about uh, because they can all communicate easily and actually speak the truth about how they really want to feel. Or I'm sure there's some bandwagon kids, but but it does seem to be again going back to the truth and the honesty. I think most of the things that are happening in life now is because people are able to say it. They are saying it, and before mm-hmm. they weren't able. We all knew a woman or a girl. There was a tomboy or dressed a certain way when we were kids and stuff like that. So there's a million tags and a million labels and a million different things and all that. But um, I think going forward, I think people just need to feel good in their own skin, basically. You know. And you've obviously been there to help Colby through all of this. And, and like you said, you know, he's in these groups now and mm. there's a lot of these amazing support systems for kids and adults transitioning yeah. and or going through this situation how do you feel your support is you know where are you getting your support from because there is a lot of change going yeah. on for you as well and things that you're having to cope with within that family setup you know do you are you completely independent emotionally or, or do you feel like you need support uh, from others? you feel you need support for, you need support from the whole family definitely in the sense of because you don't want to keep You'd want to keep talking about the same points. You'd want to keep having to remind people. Um, but inevitably, people are going to make mistakes with pronouns and all the rest of it, and that's fine. And um, it's kind of easier that Colby wants to be he and him in some ways, as, as as tough as that is, because for me, I was a very proud father of three girls, and when you lose one of them, that felt weird at first. But I find that easier than like the they and the them thing and the, and the non-binary thing, because I think people can't quite get their head around that because it's it's kind of in between both spectrums which is which is fair enough for whatever that is but I think it's it's hard to explain to a generation older than my generation um the support unit I had was uh myself and Becca Colby's mum went to see um uh like I, it took a long time to go through a lot of the channels and find the right therapist guy so we we wanted to find a therapist for Colby but it's very hard to find people that'll talk to kids under 18 really so that's 
kind of a, a little window, I think, which is quite weird because a lot of the kids are very young. Um, so we found somebody that could then point us into somebody else um, and then you can go lots of different avenues. Like the, There's a Tavistock clinic and this, that and the other, but a lot of them have like 22-month waiting lists and stuff like that. And I think a lot of it is intentional so the children can develop a time frame where they can understand or think about what they want to do a lot more rather than jumping straight into hormones and stuff like that. But you have to remember at the same time, if they're feeling dysphoria about their body, then they're going to get anxious and depressed about all that stuff as well. So it's a constant gauge of which is which is moving the fastest. Are you distressed about how you look? Do we need to move this faster? Or can we manage this until it gets to a point where you can think about this for a little bit longer before you decide making any changes to your body that you can't reverse? So it's kind of um, it's a it's a bit of a give and go to and fro thing, really. You have to very, you know, keep your eye on the on the on the mood of your all and and um, try to get as much support as you can. But like I say, this week is going to be the first time that there's actually a specific gender uh, specialist kind of therapist guy who's going to speak on Friday and hopefully then like regular sessions to try to give us the best guidance going forward. Really, it's so important. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've been, again, like massively courageous in talking and singing and, and writing about your family life and what you're going through. What has the reaction been like? Um, <clears throat> the reaction to the new songs and stuff on the tour has been, has been incredible, actually. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really uh, anticipating anything, but it has been very um, kind of special in person. There's been a lot of people outside the venues talking and... A lot of people um, feeling that I'm going to quit and this, that, and the other, and trying to encourage and give like a made these massive thought realms to show how much we offer to other people on their support in their lives, and so it's been really encouraging. Um, and I'm not one to be on social media. Uh, I don't read what people are saying. Never really have. Um, I stick up the odd thing on on the band Instagram, but apart from that, there's the postman. Um, <laughs> I'm not really one to read a lot about it, so I kind of just do what I do and kind of move move through it, really. I don't gauge much reactions or read a lot about it, but I do see it from the audience point of view when I'm in, when I'm in front of them. I love that song, Fly Like an Eagle. I also love a song that you mentioned there, um, Make Friends of the Morning, yeah. about, and you describe it beautifully. Like, so you have a, a sense in the morning of... of um, mind busyness and anxiety just a low level omnipresent mm. version of that most days that I think a lot of people relate to and yeah. this song is about trying to combat that yeah I've, I've been really fed up of it for a long long time uh not quite understanding it or working out what it is but if I if I wake up in the morning and I, I know I've got something to do that day then I'm fine because then that energy turns into like a positive energy and a get up and go energy and a productive and, and a creative energy but if it's not something that I have to go and do within the two hours I'm up, then I feel that it goes so fast and, and you know, the, 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 the like the chatter in your head goes so ridiculous that um, you have to completely focus on it and do, you know, the kind of the meditative observation of what that is really. But it's took years and years and years for me to understand that and realize what that is because for years it would just make me, it would own my day. And it's like I like I've been saying on stage, you know, somebody once said either you own the day or the day owns you. Uh. And then I wrote, don't let the devil take another day because I was fed up of being robbed of my time, really. 
I feel like uh, you can easily let that stuff kind of take over all the things that's going on in your day. And for me, that song kind of inevitably just came about. It wasn't something I wrote down, really. I, I was kind of working that out as, as as it kind of came out. But I think I think everybody can have that high-speed um, anxiety sort of feeling in the morning. But I think learning to kind of control it and calm it and then turn it into something that makes it work for you it can actually work the other, the other way as well it can become like an energy because i've realized the energy that kind of weighs me down is the same energy that kind of makes me really creative and really productive mm. but if it's not channeled in the right way then it goes wrong do you think people felt like that 100 years ago i feel like this is such a new problem that everyone's facing that there's this omnipresent anxiety that we're kind of trying to figure out you know what's wrong i always think what's wrong with me why am i not coping with the normal or whatever but it just seems like it, everyone's dealing with this at the moment well there's a lot of responsibilities for everybody you know if you've got if you've got a bunch of kids you've got the job you've got everything you know you, you're constantly feeling responsible for stuff and i think and you're constantly being told how you're supposed to feel about stuff yeah. and, and there's there's so much information coming left and right i think people are getting like overwhelmed by it so um i think a lot of it for me is i never i, I was never an anxious kid i was never really nervous or it not to my memory anyway uh, I felt quite free and I, f- I felt quite a placid kid that was always playing from one thing to the other thing and I think once you get, once you get to the uh, the point of um, people having opinions about yourself or about your job or about your life or this that and the other it can kind of you can either take it on board or not take it on board I decided to kind of not take any of that on board from about the year 2000 because I saw that they can put you on the front of a newspaper and love you then the next week they can say that you, they don't love you so then you realise, well, there's no point taking the comp- compliment and then the insult because they're both coming from the same source, yeah. really. So I, I didn't really acknowledge any of that. So for, for me, it's just been a, a constant catharsis, really. I mean, whatever I'm feeling, I've just written down. And most of the time, I don't really know what it means at the time I'm doing it. It's not until 10 years later I can look at it and go, oh, I was going through that. It becomes like a diary of your life, basically. But... If you assess it too much at the time, I think you'd edit yourself. And I think if you edit yourself, then you're not being true. You're not being honest. So if you can just kind of throw the paint on the canvas, that's, that is what it becomes really. Well, that's it. Like seeing the worth in just getting it out and not having to figure it out straight away. I think mm. we all want this kind of quick fix or an answer to why we're feeling certain things. But actually, I think it's so important what you just said. The first most important bit is just getting it out of you, writing yeah. it down, talking to someone else, painting like whatever it is to get it outside of you that then you can maybe assess later down the line if you want to or it will just naturally incrementally you'll you'll figure out what those feelings meant but it's you need to you know exercise it get it out well it's like the don't think just draw or don't think just write you mm. know you, because a lot of it comes from your subconscious i believe the minute you empty your brain of all the, the clutter then that's when the, the kind of natural stuff comes in it's like when you go walking you you, you think in a different way or um, it, it's like if you're constantly filled with noise when I was a kid I was bored a lot because I was in a very quiet village so when you're bored a lot and you're peaceful then things come into your mind your imagination works but now unfortunately kids are constantly distracted and consumed with something so the imagination is not being used in the way that it was used in my generation mm. because it's constantly being uh, heightened distracted. and distracted We're distracted constantly you know, I'd like looking at a car window you know with nothing on you know, it was just, he didn't have a choice, but that's what it was. And like I said earlier, on a rainy day, you'd be with your mates, you'd be looking out the window, the rain going horizontal because you're just waiting for it to stop so you go back out. And that was it. So there's definitely, 
an element of your subconscious takes over. I think when you when you quiet yourself. So, and I think that's where the music and the art comes from. So if that's constantly cluttered and, and a mess, then it doesn't really come out as easily. So it's a fascinating um, ball of wool, which I'm never going to probably unravel. Mm, it's just find those little <clears throat> moments of space where you can let that in, I guess. Those mm. little snatches of time where there isn't thought or you are just staring out a window and we don't do, none of us do that enough. No. More staring out of windows. Um Kelly, thank you so much for thank your you. time today and for letting us into your wonderful studio. Um, I'll text my dad and say that <laughs> you said hi, even if you didn't, because he'll be chuffed. I will. <laughs> thank you, Kelly. It was a real pleasure to spend time in your company. God, how I miss spending time in the company of friends. I'm sure like all of you, I just want to hug someone so bad. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes of this show every Monday straight to your phone. You can do that for free on your podcast app of choice. And to find out who is on next week's show, find us on Instagram at Happy Place Official. A massive thanks again to Kelly, brilliant, brilliant person. I love you. To the producer, Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And to you for listening. So appreciate it. Stay home. Stay safe. Let's take care of each other. Big love.